Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you guys are here. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to spend most of the morning. If you don't have one, there should be one of these blue ones on the floor around you. It's page 707 in this Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, let me just remind you, please take this one with you. We want to give you God's Word. We want you to have that with you uh, so that you can read along with us every week. Uh, take it, put your name in it, take it home with you, uh, read it this week, and then come back uh, ready again next week. Uh, as I said, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. If I have to reintroduce myself, uh, I want to apologize. It's been a few minutes since I've been up here on stage. Uh, I was supposed to preach three weeks ago, and our water went out. And so some of you I got to see over at our Noblesville campus. Um, and then since then, I've had a vacation with my family, uh, which was great. Uh, it's so good to reconnect with people I know and love all the time. We try to do that on a regular basis. We try to um, spend some time together, even at the dinner table. We often like to play games at dinner. We did a lot of that on vacation. But do you, do you guys get together at dinner with your family? You play games at dinner? We do that almost every night that we have dinner together. We'll play Uno or Scategories at the dinner table. Or even when we're out at a restaurant, sometimes we'll, we'll play uh, Heads Up. The girls have Heads Up on their phone. I don't know if you've ever played that. That's kind of fun. Or uh, if we don't have anything with us, we'll play a game called What's Missing. This is one of those games, it's really good with little kids. It's not quite as good with teenagers because they're a little bit better at it. But uh, the way this works is this. Everybody looks at what's on the table. It's best to do this after you order, you know, while you're waiting for your food, you're trying to kill some time. Everybody looks at, at the table and then you close your eyes and then one person with their eyes open uh, pulls something off the table and hides it. And everybody has to guess what's missing from the table, right? And so uh, it's usually really good for about the first three or four rounds. And then somebody starts pulling a sugar packet out of the middle of the stack. And of course, nobody notices what's missing. But, but missing things, you, you can make it into kind of a fun game. But missing things can also be uh, really horrifying and can cause us some panic and grief sometimes when things are missing, right? When important things go missing. I remember a few years ago, my, uh, several years ago, our kids were in elementary school. We were at the Children's Museum just enjoying a, kind of a lazy Saturday, and we got a phone call from our neighbor. Not at all unusual to get a phone call from our neighbor, but she said, hey, is our youngest daughter at your house? And that wouldn't have been weird because, yeah, that happened all the time, but we weren't home at the time, and we said, no, we're, we're at the Children's Museum, and we think our doors are locked, and we're, we're not sure where she is. Okay, well, we're, we're just looking for her. We're kind of looking around the neighborhood. We don't really see her. And so um, we started to follow this drama as it unfolded over the next half an hour. And uh, nobody knew where she was, and they had searched through the neighborhood, so they called the police, and the police were looking through the house, and the police were looking through the neighborhood, and they, they had closed off our neighborhood, and we're still at the Children's Museum. We, we're just kind of following this via phone and text, and then they, they send the dogs in, and the canines are like sniffing throughout the neighborhood trying to find this missing girl, and no one can find her. There's no trace of her anywhere. Well, I just want to let your, let your mind at ease. They did find her. Uh, she was hiding under a pile of dirty laundry in her bedroom. What had happened was that she decided on Saturday morning she didn't want to do her chores, so she thought she'd hide. So instead of washing her clothes, she hid under them and then fell asleep. And so when her parents came yelling through the house, they didn't hear her name. When the police came, of course, they didn't hear her name. And when the dogs came, well, her whole, that whole pile of clothes smelled like her, so they didn't know she was under there. And so we eventually found her. But isn't it when something is missing, like the whole neighborhood was deployed on this. The, the Noblesville Police Department was deployed on this. The, the police dogs were deployed on this. I mean, isn't it crazy how when something important goes missing, we will go to great lengths, won't we? We'll take extreme measures to try to become whole again. And so today we're going to look at a story of a man who uh, we might say 
has everything. We looked at this man, we would say, man, he's got everything that I want to have. He's got everything that he needs. But clearly, there's something missing in his life. And we're going to have, he's going to have this interaction with Jesus that, well, quite frankly, it probably doesn't end how we think it should end. And so we're continuing this series today called The End of Your Rope. And uh, most of us get to a point somewhere in our lives where we have that something missing. We get to the point where we feel like we've run out of options from the pain of unanswered prayer to struggles in relationships to anxiety about things that we can't control or we can't understand. Doesn't life have a way of stealing joy and meaning from us sometimes? Um, but it doesn't have to. Jesus understands that. He, he has everything that we need. And so during this series, we're going to uh, encourage one another to turn to Jesus for help in those low moments, in those times where we feel like we're at the end of our rope. What we're going to do is we're looking at four different encounters. This is the third of four here. And we're looking at four different encounters in the Gospels where people went reaching out to Jesus in their time of greatest need. And so this story I'm going to share with you today is one that you've probably heard before. Uh, maybe you've read it before. It's in three of the four Gospels. And so if you've been in church uh, any part of your life, you've probably read it. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to look at the Mark piece of it. Um, if you've read your Bible, you probably know how this story ends. It's a very familiar story to you, but I don't want you to rely on that today. I want you to see this story from a completely different perspective today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell it a little bit out of order. Um, so maybe it'll help you see it with a new perspective. So let's start with this sentence. This is found in, in Mark 10:22. It's the second half of that verse. And this is all it says. This is what I want to start with. It says this, he, this is the man that we're going to talk about. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Isn't that a weird sentence? That's pretty strange if you, with like out of, completely out of context. That's an unusual sentence to read, right? He went away sad. I, I could see he went away sad even though he had great wealth. That would make sense. Or he went away happy because he had great wealth. I mean, isn't that uh, what we're led to believe, that great wealth will make us happy? Now, I know you've heard people tell you money can't buy happiness, right? Money can't buy happiness. Money can't buy happiness. Doesn't that sound like something rich people say? <laughs> Money can't buy happiness. Anybody ever said that to you? And do you ever think to yourself, maybe just deep down inside, do you ever think to yourself when somebody says money can't buy happiness, do you ever think, yeah, but I'd sure like to give it a shot, right? <laughs> if somebody wealthier than you says that, you know what? If I had your money, I'd probably be happier than you are now. So why don't we trade places? Okay. I, when we were in Florida last week, we were at one of those kitschy souvenir shops, and they have a sign, one of those signs you hang on the wall, and it says, uh, money can't buy happiness, but it can get you on a boat, and that's a start, right? So, okay, so maybe that's your way of buying happiness. Money can't buy happiness. Um, but here's this man. He has great wealth, but he also has a problem. And the only thing that we know about him, we read this sentence, the only thing we know about him is that he's got a lot of money, and he's sad. So he's got a lot of money but it's not fixing his problem, whatever it is. And we don't know what compels him to think that maybe Jesus has the answer to this problem that he's got. But what we're gonna see as we read this story is he's gonna run up to Jesus and uh, ask him this question. This is how Mark describes it, Mark 10, 17. You can jump back up the page there. Mark 10, 17 says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's this man on the surface, he's successful, He's rich. The text says he had great wealth. In other accounts, we read that he's also young and he's a ruler. He's probably also handsome and smart. He's got all this stuff going for him, right? We, we can look at this. And, and in fact, it, your Bible, it may say at the heading of this passage, the rich young ruler. 
That's what we know about this man, even before we start reading it. Um, so he's a ruler. He's like maybe a governor or a magistrate of some sort. He's got people that, uh, that um, are under his authority. So we know he's a ruler. We know he's young. Um, at any rate, he doesn't just have money. He's got power. He's got influence. Yet he runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees and he asks him this question. He clearly knows that Jesus may have the answer, the secret to what he's looking for. And in this case, it was eternal life. And so what we see as we unpack this passage is that here's this man, and he's so worried about what's going to happen after this life that he can't enjoy what's happening in his current life. Like he's so worried about what's going to happen in eternity that all of the riches and all of the things that he has going for them, he's not enjoying those because uh, even though he's got this power and influence and money and he's young, he's worried about what's going to happen next. It reminds me a little bit of an interview I saw on television a few years ago. This was on 60 Minutes, and this is a number of years back now, but it's on Patriots quarterback Tom Brady. And uh, they filmed this interview right after he had won his third Super Bowl, and I just want to show you a snippet of this to see if this rings any bells with you. Look at this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Hmm. Now, I really just wanted to show that video for Jerry Neville because you guys know he's a huge Tom Brady fan. In fact, if you didn't know this, he started eating a vegan diet, and he's wearing Uggs now to work. And so, uh, you know, congratulate Jerry on his conversion. Uh, but no, I mean, do you sense that tension that Tom Brady's talking about? Like, here's this man. Think about, think about a, a rich, young ruler. Okay, this is Tom Brady at 27 years old, at the peak of his game. He's on top of his game. He, he's, he's got more money than you could ever imagine. He's married to his dream woman, the supermodel. And here he is saying, there's got to be more than this, right? This is the same tension that the rich, young ruler is feeling as he comes up before Jesus. And it's the same tension that many of us feel, right? that, that we're rich, or at least we have everything we need, even if we wouldn't admit that we're rich, but we've got this emptiness inside. Something's missing. Something big is missing, and we will go to great lengths to try to find what that is. So the rich, run, rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and this is how the rest of that interaction goes. We'll start back up in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Those are all really important things. If you want to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, you know what you're supposed to do, especially that last one, kids, honor your father and mother. That's important, right? That's, amen. That's a command that's tied to a promise in scripture. Honor your father and mother. So that's what, that's what Jesus tells the man. And look, look at what he says. Look at his response. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now let's just stop right there for a minute, okay? I'm not gonna speculate whether or not this man has a warped view of himself, okay? He's basically saying, hey, I'm without sin here. I've never done anything wrong. I'm not gonna analyze whether we should be calling him the rich young liar or not. Um, but I will say this, most of us, think of ourselves more highly than we should. 
Most of us think we're better than we are. And I think that comes from a life of just comparing ourselves with other people. That, that when we look at our lives and we look around, we think about our friends and our family, and we think, well, I'm, I'm at least doing better than that person. Uh, and, and we often judge ourselves by our intentions, where we judge other people by their actions. So people will have this action that we think, well, that's not right, but we have no idea what their intention was. But we may have an action and we, give, we forgive ourselves because that wasn't my intention to hurt their feelings or to hurt them or to do whatever. But we judge ourselves on our intentions. We judge others on our actions. So we often think that we're better than we are. And so maybe in this man's heart, he never really broke any of those commandments, but he did. Uh, we don't know what that is, but, but think about this, okay? There's this man and he says he's without sin and he says it to the only person who can rightly claim to ever be without sin. And you just know that Jesus is ready to give this guy an earful, right? I mean, he's just gonna unload on this man. And I mean, isn't that what you think he would do if that was you in the rich young ruler's place and you came to Jesus and you told him what was going on? You just know that Jesus is there ready to unload on you, right? And that's why I think sometimes that's why we don't confess our sin to him because we think he's gonna unload on us. I think that's why we don't always trust God with our junk because we view him as some kind of spiritual police officer that's ready to catch us in the act of doing something wrong. And so if that's your view of Jesus, I just want you to listen for a minute for this next verse because this could be so transformational in how you view God and maybe how you see that he views you. Verse 21 says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now I want you to see where this is coming from We've got no indication that this man was a follower of Jesus. As far as we know, and as far as all three gospels, if you read this story, they just met. This is the first interaction they've ever had. And this is a, a rich man with lots of power, but he's got a problem and he comes and he lays it at Jesus's feet. And the response he gets is not judgment. It's not condemnation. It's not shame. It's not rebuke. It's love. And I want you to see that love is always Jesus's first response. The only people that Jesus ever got angry with were religious hypocrites and Satan. If you read through all four gospels, that's what you're gonna see. He gets mad at the religious people who are trying to put their rules on other people. He gets mad at Satan and his, and his demons, and that's it. Everybody else, he corrects, yes, he corrects them. But his first response is always love. It's the platform from which he operates. Jesus always operates from a place of love. And that's, this is why this is important to know, because he's about to get prescriptive. He's gonna give this man a prescription for his problem, a solution. And sometimes when we see a solution in scripture, what Jesus would say is a solution, we see it as a, as a commandment or command and we view it and we think it's coming from a place of judgment or a place of punishment. But I want you to see that when Jesus offers us these commands, he's offering them from a place of love. But before he does that, this next line is also amazing because he says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he says, one thing you lack, pause. Is that really true? In the rich young ruler's mind, he's perfect maybe, but do you think he only lacked one thing? I mean, do you think if we went to his wife that maybe she would admit that he doesn't always put the toilet seat down and doesn't take out the trash very well? Do you think maybe we should go to his kids and see if he ever uh, yells at them and says something that he might regret later, maybe something that he shouldn't say? Maybe we should go to his servants. I bet he has servants. Do you think his servants would say, no, he always treats us with great respect and, and with, with, you know, with the utmost respect? I don't know. What, what about the people that he uh, rules over? Do you think they would say that he's a kind and compassionate ruler? Uh, he's wealthy. Maybe he got wealthy by cheating somebody or by skimming a little bit off the top. Do you think they would have anything to say about him? Well, maybe he lacks more than one thing. I don't know. But this is what I want you to catch. This is what Jesus says. One thing you lack. And this is how Jesus always corrects us. Gently 
and specifically. Hey, there's one thing you lack. There's one thing you need to change. There's one thing you could be doing better. And this is why this is so important for you to understand. Because some of us have voices in our head telling us that we're not good at anything. You're a terrible dad. You're a terrible mom. You're not a good husband or wife. You're a bad employee. You're a bad student. You're a bad boyfriend or a bad girlfriend. You're a bad kid. You're a bad friend. You're not a good teammate. You're not a good pastor. That that one's for me. I'm just being real, okay? You need to understand that all of those voices, those are not the voice of Jesus. You have a very real enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He will steal your joy. He will uh, kill your motivation. He will destroy your self-opinion. And he does it with lies. He constantly speaks lies into you to believe that, make you believe that there is nothing good about you. And when your enemy criticizes you, he does it harshly and he does it broadly. He does it very widely. But he has one advantage over Jesus and it's this. He's loud. And here comes Jesus, gently, specifically correcting. One thing you lack. One thing you could do better. And when you hear that voice, you need to listen. Now, I spent some time setting this up because what Jesus is going to say next is radical. Okay, it's a radical prescription for what this, what's eating this man. He's about to drop a truth bomb on this young man. And when you hear it, you need to understand it's coming from a place of love and he's using gentle correct, correct, uh, correcting. And so uh, the second part of Mark 10, 21 says this. Jesus tells him, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Now today, this would be a tall order. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for you to sell everything you have? I'm not just talking about the emotional, the mental part of that, right? I'm talking about the physical transaction of selling everything you have. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, first of all, there are, there, this is the first century. In the first century, this is so much harder than it would be today. There, there are no bank accounts or 401ks that you could empty out and just give those to charity, right? I mean, all of your assets are in livestock, are in possessions, maybe, maybe a little bit of silver and gold, and land, okay? And so if you've got an asset that you want to sell, I mean, there's no Craigslist, there's no Facebook marketplace. You aren't putting six sheep on marketplace and waiting for a porch pickup, right? <laughs> waiting for somebody to show up. Are you going to come get your six sheep or not? And I mean, like, and they're going to you know, pay you with PayPal. That's not going to happen. And then, oh, you got to relist it again because nobody ever showed up for their six sheep. Nobody really wants these six sheep. Everybody says they're interested and then nobody ever responds. Why is that? That didn't happen in the first century. You got to find somebody who wants six sheep and is willing to pay you money for them. You thought about that? How hard would it be to sell all your possessions if you got a lot of possessions? He didn't give, Jesus didn't give this man just a, a prescription to how to fix his problem. He gave him an errand. Like, go do all this stuff. And also, there's no, once you sell all your stuff, there's no organized charity. Charities give the money to. You can't just do all that and then write a check to the Salvation Army or to the church or to wherever. You've you got to find somebody in need who does that. So here's what this amounts to. If you're going to sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, you have to think of every possession that you own and who is in need that might need this. 
And if you can't think of anybody that might need this or you don't know anybody who might need this, you have to go then find somebody who wants to buy it from you who will give you gold or silver or some kind of currency for it and then take it and give that, find somebody who needs that who can use it more than you. I mean, this is a big deal to go, forget the emotional part. You gotta go find somebody to sell all your stuff. And can you think about that as, the, the first stuff's easy, right? The first stuff that we get rid of is always easy. How many of you have moved recently in the last couple of years? Right, and there's stuff that you get rid of, right, when you're getting ready to move. You start probably with the boxes you never unpacked from your last move. <laughs> Anything that's in those is probably fair game. We can get rid of those. And maybe you've got uh, some rooms in your current house that you don't have in your new house. So I'm not going to need that furniture, so I'll get rid of that. And then you start getting rid of stuff that's a little bit older, and then it starts to hurt, doesn't it? You start to look at stuff you have, and you go, I really like that, but maybe I don't need it anymore. And then there's the stuff that you're never, ever, ever going to get rid of no matter what anybody says. When we moved recently, um, my, uh, I, my wife and I, before we had kids, we used to collect old books. We would go to old bookstores, and we would go to half-price books, we'd go to auctions, we'd go to, when we were on vacation, we would often go to a bookstore and buy a book as a souvenir from our trip. And so we used to have just thousands of books, and we have sold 90% of the books we've ever owned. But I have a small collection, maybe a box or two of antique books that are just some of my favorite things to look at. I may never read them, um, but I like to look at them. I like to have them. They have memories for me. And uh, she just, she knows. I think she's just accepted by now. I'm never going to get rid of these. And so when we moved the last time, my wife put all of those books in a box, and she wrote on the side, because you know how you label all of your boxes when you move, if you're a good uh, friend who's getting people to help you move. On the side of this box, she put books that we will probably never read and we have no place to store, but we're keeping them anyway for who knows why. <laughs> She's so funny. I love her. I'm not getting rid of my own books, okay? They spark joy. And so I'm just going to keep them. But this is the instruction that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler. Like, you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. From a place of love... He says, there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. In this brief interaction, Jesus realized that the whole thing that was holding this man back, the one problem he had, the one thing that he lacked was he had a love of money. I want you to make sure that you heard that right. The problem wasn't that he was young. He was a young man. It wasn't that he wasn't mature enough to understand what was happening. The problem wasn't that he was a ruler Jesus had lots of people follow him, and some of them had authority. He had fishermen and tax collectors, but he also had people who were magistrates and uh, people who had power that followed him. That wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't even that he was rich. The problem with this man wasn't that he had too much money. It was that he loved money. And Jesus, in a brief conversation, was able to discern that, that his love of money was the problem. But his love of money wasn't a money problem. It was a heart problem. In fact, love of money is always a heart problem. Jesus himself said that where your money is, there, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I want you to know that I got to choose to tell this story today. Um, the way we do preaching at Genesis, we don't always get to choose what we preach about because we've got two campuses and we're, we're preaching the same message usually at both campuses. And so many weekends, like when it's my turn to preach, I, we're preaching on Ephesians 3 today. And so I've got to pick that passage or we're, we're, 
you know, preaching on this aspect of marriage or this aspect of whatever, and I kinda, we kind of get told what to preach because that's where the calendar falls. But for this series, we each got to choose a story that we wanted to tell from the Gospels. And I chose this story of the rich young ruler because of this aspect of his love of money and heart problem, being a heart problem. And I, I chose this for two reasons. The first reason is this. Do I think we have a love of money problem in our culture? Yes, absolutely. In America, in the suburbs, in Hamilton County, many people love money. It becomes our number one pursuit. It, it affects what we choose to do for our career. It affects where we choose to live, what neighborhoods we live in. It, it affects our politics. It affects how we treat others. It affects how generous we are, what we give our money to. We have an epidemic of self-reliance. And I don't just mean America, and I don't just mean the 21st century, but I mean Western culture in general. We are a self-reliant culture. We want to be self-reliant. We, we want to be able to take care of ourselves no matter what happens. We don't want to have to rely on our kids to take care of us. We don't want to have to rely on the government to take care of us. We, we don't want to rely on God to take care of us. We don't always believe or trust that he will be our provider. And so money is the way we do that. We collect it. We, we keep it. We put it away. We store it up and it becomes our number one obstacle to following Jesus. That's one reason I wanted to tell this story, because our culture has a love of money problem. But here's the second reason. I have a love of money problem. Like at 49 years old now, I've been following Jesus half my life, and I still struggle with this. I know in my head that money can't buy happiness, and I know that my life is so much better than people that I know that have more money than me. Uh, and yet I stand up here and I confess to you that love of money is my biggest obstacle. It's my biggest hurdle to obedience in Christ. And so if there's anything you hear today that's helpful to you in this message, if there's anything that you hear that connects to you, I just want you to know that that is a byproduct of me preaching this to myself. Love of money is a heart problem. And it's a bad heart problem. And the Apostle Paul, writing to his younger apprentice, Timothy, said it this way. He said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you've probably heard that before. You probably know this verse. Uh, even if you can't quote it word for word, you probably know that somewhere the Bible says money is the root of all evil or money is evil or the love of money is evil or something like that. You've probably seen this passage before. Or you've heard it before. Or you've read it before. Maybe you've quoted it before. But what Paul says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He's saying the love of money uh, can cause us to do all sorts of, of sin. All sorts of things. The love of money causes all those things. But then he clarifies. He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He, he says, people who love money, it's not that people make this conscious decision. Like the rich young ruler, we have, he's got to make this conscious decision. Am I going to sell all my stuff or am I going to follow Jesus? Most of us don't have that decision to make. But what happens is we wander into the love of money. Right? We start to trust God a little bit less and trust our money a little bit more. And so over time, we, we don't wander into God's presence. We have to bring ourselves into God's presence, but we can wander out of it. Right? We can lull ourselves into this false sense of security that money is going to be our provider, our eternal provider. In fact, the word that Paul, that Paul uses in this passage, the word pierced, is the Greek word peripyro, and peripyro is only used in scripture one time. And it's right here in this verse, which seems to me to say that money has a unique way. The love of money has a unique way at piercing our heart. It's the only place in scripture that we see it used. And we see that in ourselves sometimes. And we definitely see it in the rich young ruler. 
because now we come to the part of the story where we started, to verse 22. And so here's what Jesus says. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And now it all makes sense. Listen, it all comes together. This young man, rich but empty, who just minutes ago was desperate for Jesus to do something in his life, like to set him right, to give him some wisdom or instruction for how to have eternal life. Now he gets the answer he's waiting for, and what does he do? He decides, nah, that's too big of a sacrifice. This, this man who could afford anything decides the price is too high. I'm not going to do it. And so he enters this story with all of his stuff, but with this God-shaped hole in his heart. And that's exactly how he leaves, with all of his stuff intact, but with this God-shaped hole in his, his heart. Now, what, what, what is the invitation that he turned down? Jesus said, give all your things to the poor and come follow me. And so that's how we know that the love of money was an issue for this man. I mean, if we were to look at Jesus's prescription for him, we could turn it around the other way. Maybe it'd make more sense if, if, if we said, uh, Jesus said, come follow me, but first you got to get rid of all the stuff that's holding you back, right? You got to sell your stuff. In other words, what Jesus was trying to tell him is that the love of money is a heart problem and generosity is the only cure. The call on his life wasn't to be generous. The call on his life was to follow Jesus. Now think about this, okay? We're 2,000 years removed from this story. 2,000 years ago, this happened. Now 2,000 years later, what do we know about Jesus' followers? I mean, how much do we know about James and John and Peter and Andrew and Matthew and even Judas? There's these guys that spent three and a half years like following Jesus, walking around with him and performing miracles. We, we know all of the disciples performed miracles. They, they fed hungry people. They, they watched Jesus teach. They, they fed the poor. And, and 2,000 years later, billions of people know their names and their stories and what they did. There are stories. Their stories are etched in eternity, these men who made the decision to follow Jesus. Now think about the rich young ruler. His story is told in three of the four gospels, and yet we don't even know his name. He has chosen to fix his eyes on what is seen and temporary instead of what is eternal. We never know. We'll never know what he missed out on by saying yes to his money and no to Jesus. Now, let's just understand that each of us have the same decision to make every day, right? We have the same choice. We gotta be clear, the call of the, the, call of the gospel of Jesus is not to give away all your stuff, the call of the gospel of Jesus is to be willing to give away all your stuff if he asks you to. Right? For many of us, love of money is a problem. For others, it's not. But it's not about giving all your stuff away. You can't earn your way into heaven. Uh, we know that. You can't be generous enough that you can buy your way into heaven. We know that. How do we know that? Well, because the rest of the New Testament speaks to that. It, it tells us how we can earn how we can have eternity with God. We can't earn eternity with God. We, it's given to us. It's grace. It's gifted to us. John 3.16, the, the way to eternal life is spelled out for us in Scripture. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. It's God's action. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. That same question that the rich young ruler was looking for, Jesus gave to us in Scripture. There, there's nothing in there about giving away your stuff unless it's the thing that's standing in your way. 
So also, right after this guy leaves, the disciples pull Jesus aside and said, hey, uh, Jesus, that thing you just told that guy about giving all this stuff away, like, like what about us? We, we don't have anything to give away. We left everything behind when we followed you. We left, remember we left our boats and our nets, the fishermen would say? We left our boats and our nets, you know. Matthew would say, we left, I left my tax collecting job back behind. People have left families and spouses and kids and, and farms and homes. And Jesus says, hey, guys, guys, don't worry. I got you. I got you. I'm taking care of you. He says, believe me, whatever you've left behind because of me, you'll be repaid 100 times in the next life. It's not about money. It's about the heart. It's a heart problem. Love of money is a heart problem. Now, for you, love of money may not be an issue. For some of you, love of money is an issue. And I would say if Jesus were here today, he would give you a very similar prescription to what he gave the rich young ruler. Maybe you need to do a radical act of generosity. If you see that the love of money is the number one obstacle that's holding you back from following Jesus, I think the best thing you can do is today give a radically generous gift to somebody. You know, give it to a charity. Give it to something you believe in. Go out to lunch and, and leave a $100 tip for your waitress. I mean, do something crazy radical that you would never do unless Jesus was calling you to do it. Maybe that's your call today. But for some of you, love of money is not really a thing for you. It's not really an issue. You, you hold your money like this. You hold it very loosely. And so let me ask you, what is your heart problem? What is the thing that constantly gets in the way of following Jesus? What's your stumbling block to being obedient to Christ? If it's not money, maybe it's success. Like your constant focus on your job or on your business, your career is born out of a massive case of self-reliance. You, you don't want to rely on God because you don't trust that he'll provide for you. And so your deepest desire is that people would recognize you for being successful at what you do. You, you want to make your business, your job, the next best thing. And so you chase that. You, you want to be recognized for what you can accomplish. That's a stumbling block for you. It's going to prevent you from fully giving your heart over to Jesus. Maybe for some of you, it's alcohol. It's, it started with a glass of wine every day when you get home to unwind and before the end of the night, now you look and the whole bottle's gone and it started innocently enough. You would go out with some friends after work for a drink and then you stopped going out because you didn't want people to see how much you were drinking and so now you do it at home but you kind of hide it from your husband or you hide it from your wife because you don't want them to know how much but every night it's a bottle and it's getting worse and it's not getting any better. And, and in those rare moments where you're able to be honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what, this is a problem for me but you haven't done anything about it. It's, it's, maybe it's gotten out of hand. Now, I'm talking to followers of Jesus now. Or, or maybe it's, it's drugs. You know, it started with that accident and the doctor prescribed some kind of painkiller and it was really helpful for you to get through that. But now the accident's over, the surgery's over and you still find yourself getting those prescriptions and you tell your doctor it's worse than it is because you need to have that drug. You need to have that prescription. You need to do something about that. You need to do something radical about that. For you, maybe it's pornography or sex. Like, you desperately want to follow God, but your flesh is holding you back. You've got these desires, and every time you get that urge, it's, it's so much easier just to give in. I mean, we don't believe that God can get us through it without giving in to our fleshly desires, and it's holding you back. For some of you, it's fear. You're, you're worried about what your friends are thinking. You're worried about not looking cool. You're, you're so worried about the, the profile that you're putting out there. Your social media profile looks like you'll, uh, you're so worried about that that you'll say things you don't believe to impress people you don't like who, who don't even care about you. And meanwhile, Jesus is standing there looking at you and loving you. And for some of you, it's unforgiveness. That somebody did something to you, they hurt you, and they claim to be a Christian. And because of that, you've had a really hard time trusting God. Because if you think if that's what God is like, if they're like that person, I don't want any part of that. 
And if that's you, let me just say, I don't want any part of that God either. Don't put on God what one person did to you. But maybe for you, it's something else entirely. Whatever it is, whatever's holding you back, are you willing to surrender it to him? Are you willing to take a radical step even today to, to come and lay it before Jesus and put it in his feet? I want you to see one more thing in this story. We started at the end of the story, so I wanna end at the beginning. Uh, to really understand how this story begins, I think we really have to have a feel for what it would be like to be a rich, young ruler in the first century. And so you, you don't just have power and influence, right? You've got, you command respect everywhere you go in the streets. People know who you are. You're dressed better than everybody. You're more dignified than everybody. You've got servants to answer all your questions. So you would never have to go up to this rabbi to ask him what he thinks about eternal life. You've got people to answer that for you. Uh, you, you don't ever have to get your clothes dirty and you don't run to anybody. People run to you. That's the situation this man finds himself in. So this guy who to everyone else looks like he has it all together, has it all. How much emptiness would this man have to feel so that this story even takes place? I mean, look again in verse 17, what it says as we close here. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Imagine this wealthy man running up before Jesus and getting on his knees and bowing at his feet. Like, what is this posture? It's submission, right? He's submitting himself to Jesus. He's saying, my power is nothing compared to your power. My answers are nothing compared to your powers. I'm gonna, or my, my answers are nothing compared to your answers. I'm gonna submit myself. I'm gonna lay whatever's bothering me at your feet right now. And I'm gonna trust you to answer this question in a way that is gonna give me relief and it's gonna bring me joy. I mean, that's what he does. That's, that's where he ends the story is not where we should end, but where he starts the story is where we need to start. He submitted his own power out of reverence to Jesus by bowing at his feet, surrendering his own will to Jesus' will. And that's absolutely where it needs to start for me and for you, if we wanna fill that emptiness we feel inside. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, um, we're so thankful for this story of the rich young ruler and like what it can mean, what it can even speak for us. Uh, we're, we're thankful um, that in this man, we see the power of Jesus at work. We see his love, we see his grace, uh, we see um, even just the way that he corrects us gently and specifically. And we see that all ironed out for us on this page. So Lord, we thank you for that. And God, for some of us, we have uh, a big stumbling block, a big hurdle in our way to following you. And it's something that we've placed there. And we've, we haven't, most of us haven't done it intentionally. It's kind of crept up on us, but we have over time, we've allowed something to stand in our way and become a stumbling block for us. And Lord, this, just even today, I ask that you would give us the strength and the power to do something radical, to surrender that to you. Or would you help us to move whatever it is that's standing in our way out of the way so that we can become closer to you? Lord, we wanna find our way back to you. Even those of us who have known you for a long time, we've got something maybe that's standing in the way of knowing you more. We wanna know you better, God. Help us to do that today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.